invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We have uh, concluded our study of the book of Revelation, and we are going to shift our focus uh, very much on to Christmas in these a couple Sundays leading up to Christmas. Now, I want to begin this morning by asking a question. Now, I won't ask anyone to raise their hands uh, for obvious reasons, um, but, I, but I do want to pose this question and have you consider it for a moment. How many of you uh, have ever been guilty of not really paying attention to someone else while they speak to you? I know stereotypically this would be pinned on husbands and fathers fairly readily, but I, I trust that uh, we would not be the only ones guilty of this. Students in school listening to a teacher lecture on Zoom, I'm sure there are moments where uh, you're guilty of kind of fading out, not really paying attention. Someone's talking to you, and, and though you, you hear their voice, and perhaps you even respond with verbal cues, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, uh, the truth is your mind is not engaged in listening. You, you, you are zoned out. You are thinking about other things. You're, you're distracted. You're, you're, you're just words are going in and out. But you miss what's being said. This morning, we are going to uh, focus on a text in Matthew. In fact, the first part of Matthew's gospel. And it's a passage that I suspect, if we are honest, many of us, if not all of us, would have to acknowledge that we are guilty of of maybe reading these words, but really not paying that close attention, or, or maybe not even reading them, maybe just kind of skimming through them and getting to the place where the real action happens. And, and, and the truth is that we're kind of zoned out when we look at this part of the text. Uh, we have not paid close attention. And, and it's the passage with which Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew begins his gospel gospel, the, the passage that leads directly into Matthew's sharing of the Christmas story, the story of Christ's birth. And that is uh, Matthew 1 to 17, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, I can't see you at home. Um, I'm going to read the text in a moment. This is not the time where you should go refill your coffee. I, I, I hope that your eyes are not going to simply glaze over as I read. I, I want to challenge you to listen attentively, invite the Holy Spirit to, uh, to show you what he wants to show you as I read this text and then uh, this morning as we explore it. Uh, the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful, and so we believe that about this passage as well. And so uh, listen with me or follow along, preferably if you have your Bible handy, as I read this morning Matthew chapter 1, verses one to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. 
David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now I won't ask for anyone to uh, tell me. I, 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 I trust that we were doing our best to pay attention, to, to, to be attentive to that. Now I want to begin, though, with a question uh, that is worth asking. Why why begin your story of the life and ministry of Jesus like this, Matthew? I mean, why preface your account of the, the birth of Christ and his life and his ministry with this list of names? Uh, what I want to contend this morning is that, that, far, that this is not simply a, a boring and irrelevant list of strange and often uh, unfamiliar names, along with a few that we recognize. Uh, this text actually reveals some things of great significance. It, it provides for us the backstory to the story of Jesus. It, it, it shares with us the story behind the story. What we will discover as we dig into this text, as we explore it more closely, is this. We will come to see that God works in history using and including broken people to accomplish his glorious purposes for redemption and blessing. Let me say that again. God works through history. God works in history using and including broken people to accomplish his purposes for redemption and blessing. I want to uh, spend our morning uh, unpacking that, that sentence, that assertion this morning. First, by looking at how we see that God is working through history. Second, how God uh, uses and includes broken people. And then third, how God accomplishes his glorious purposes for redemption and blessing. So first, God works through history. God works in history. Though in our Canadian Western culture today, there is an increasing divorce between what goes on all around us in the way of celebrating Christmas and the Christian origins of Christmas. Uh, th that is a reality. Uh, looking around our own city, perhaps looking around the mall, if you ventured out in the midst of COVID, uh, one could well conclude that Christmas is about lights and trees and brightly wrapped gifts and an overweight man dressed in a fuzzy red suit. In, in other words, judging simply from appearances, from what we see around us in our culture, in our world here, uh, Christmas is this 
uh, this wonderful, beautiful time filled with lots of good things that can be celebrated and enjoyed. Uh, it is, as one, uh, one writer puts it, it is a wonderful secular holiday. Divorced from its Christian origins, there may be much that people can appreciate and enjoy about Christmas, but it is ultimately built on a house of cards. It has no substance. It has no root. It's all good feelings and fairy tales. Even if we add some of the elements of of Christmas, shepherds and wise men and angels and a baby in a manger... Even those things, there is a risk that we treat them simply or that people around us treat them simply as as the furniture of Christmas, as, as scenery. But when we come to Matthew's gospel, as we begin reading it from the beginning, as we read the story before the story, we are confronted with the reality that the Christmas story, the account of Christ's birth, of his coming, is anchored in, it is rooted in real history. The text begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, whose whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, his coming, his birth is not a fairy tale. It is a story that is deeply and intricately connected to a story that began centuries earlier. It is rooted in real history. Jesus' coming is a real event in human history. This happened. The Jesus whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, he is a descendant of King David. He is a descendant of Abraham the patriarch. Abraham and and David are, of course, two key figures in the story of God's people through the Old Testament narrative, through the biblical story. Abraham is the founding father of the nation. Way back in Genesis uh, chapter 12, near the beginning of the Bible, Abraham is called by God to leave his home, to leave his family, and go to a, a land that God will show him. And Abraham obeys. He goes He leaves, and God promises him that that he will make Abraham into a great nation and that through him he will bless all the peoples of the earth. David, centuries later, became Israel's greatest king. He was their second king. He he began as a young shepherd boy. He he was that shepherd boy who, who killed the giant Goliath with a stone and his sling. He ran for his life from Israel's first king, Saul, whom God had rejected. And in time, God brought him to the throne, and David became Israel's greatest king. And throughout the rest of the story of of God's people, he is the prototype king. He is the one they long for a king like David. Here in Matthew's gospel, as he begins the story of Jesus, he begins by firmly Connecting Jesus to to the history of God's people, to Abraham, the founding father of their nation, to David, the first, the, 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 the greatest king, rather, that they had. Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Jesus' coming is part of a much larger story, and his birth is rooted in history. It is real. This happened. This is not fables and fairy tales and wishful thinking. The events of Christmas happened in history. The second thing, I want us to shift our focus now to to the second part of that statement, that God uses and includes broken people. 
In the ancient world, it was quite common that for biographies, when you told the story of someone's life, typically that would be told of someone of some fame, uh, you would begin to do that by rehearsing some background information about them, uh, about that central character. Craig Keener writes this, such background might include a noble or prominent ancestry. You could share where this person was descended from to show, uh, to show them in a good light how prominent and noble they were. Uh, as in you would show a genealogy, which is what Matthew does. And, and you, would, you would do this in order to uh, provide some background and to make that person look good. It, it was in many ways uh, like a resume, if you will. Tim Keller writes this, Matthew 1 might look like a genealogy, and it is, but it is also a resume. In those times, it was your family your pedigree and clan, the people you were connected to that constituted your resume. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. So genealogies were common and it was a way to, to show who you were. Now, it has been quite a long time since I last prepared a resume, probably 20 years ago. And I don't remember specifically what I had included on that. But typically what one does when you put together a resume is... You try and highlight your strengths. You try and highlight your gifts, the good things about you that you would bring to the position you are seeking. You try and put your best foot forward. And if there are some things that are kind of negative, you tend to leave those out. You know, that, that teacher who, in whose class you never paid attention to will probably not show up on your resume as a reference. That boss who let you go, not going to show up on your resume. So too with most ancient genealogies. In, in fact, we know that Herod the Great uh, Herod the Great purged many names from his own personal, or his own public, the public genealogy, uh, his public genealogy, because he didn't want to be known as connected with certain individuals. So he had them stricken out of his genealogy. Uh, this was about impressing people. Who are you connected to? Who's in your family line? Now, in light of that normal practice in the ancient world, there is something. Uh, rather surprising about Matthew's record of Jesus' genealogy. In fact, Keller puts it this way, this, this genealogy is shockingly unlike other ancient genealogies. And it's shocking because of all that it includes. Uh, most notice, notably, then, the clue that, that draws our attention to some of these things that are actually shocking is the inclusion of the names of five women. Now, in our day, we can read that and we risk bypassing this without even giving it a second thought. But in the ancient first century, in the ancient world, in the first century, this was highly, highly unusual. Genealogies included the names of men, of the fathers, not of women. But the shock does not stop there. I want you to look with me. Look with me at the first woman whose name we come to. In verse 3, we come to the name Tamar. Now, perhaps you remember the story of Tamar. We find it in the book of Genesis, chapter 38. Remember, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs, including a man, one of his sons, named Judah. Judah himself had three sons. His first son, Ur, was a wicked man, but he, he married a Canaanite woman named Tamar. But because he was wicked, the text tells us, Genesis 38, that God put Ur to death. Now, there was in those days uh, this thing called leveret marriage, which meant if, 
if a husband died without leaving offspring, that the next son, the brother, would marry that woman and have offspring with her for, for the, the, uh, the deceased brother. It would be his, counted as his descendants. And so Judah gave Tamar to his second son. And that son, I'm not going to go into all the details, but he disobeyed God. He didn't like this deal. He didn't want to raise up offspring for his brother. And God ended up killing him too. Now Judah's third son was way too young at this point. And so Judah sent Tamar to live as a widow in her father's household. But Judah had no intention of giving his third son to Tamar. And so when he was old enough to be her husband and she realized what was going on, she dressed up like a prostitute. She disguised herself with a veil and she went and Judah propositioned her, her father-in-law, and they slept together. And the fruit of that union were twins, Perez and Zerah. The fruit of that incestuous relationship and do you notice, not only is Tamar here, but both those men, the descendants, the twins, Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. The, the second woman to appear in the genealogy is Rahab. She was also a Canaanite. She was a prostitute from the city of Jericho. She helped hide the, the Israelite spies who had gone to, to spy out the city. And because of her help, in protecting and hiding the spies, her life is preserved. And not only that, but she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. She would eventually give birth to Boaz. Boaz would in turn time marry a foreign, a foreign woman, a Moabitess named Ruth. Now, Scripture tells us that Moabites were themselves descendants from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters years and years before. But, but here, Moabites were forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord. They weren't allowed into the tabernacle or the temple. We can read about it in Deuteronomy 23. But here, not only is Ruth included, she's included in the very lineage of Jesus. She is the grandmother of King David. The fourth woman included in the genealogy is not even named in our text though we know what her name was, Bathsheba. She is simply referred to in our text as the mother of David's son Solomon with this phrase. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's how she is referenced. See, David, King David, when his army was off one night, he went out on his palace roof, King David, the great King David, and he saw this woman bathing and he lusted after her. He sent for her. He slept with her. And she became pregnant. And then he sought to cover that up. He had her husband killed. You know, Uriah, the, the husband to Bathsheba, do you know who he was? Earlier in David's life, before he came to the throne, David was running for his life from Saul. And we read about a group of mighty men, David's 30 mighty men. Men who risked their lives to preserve his. Uh, men who, who risked their lives for David's sake. Uriah is listed as one of David's mighty men. He was a friend. He was someone who had put his life on the line for David. And, and David had him killed. Because he'd taken his wife. Keller, Tim Keller writes this. Do you know why Matthew leaves off the name Bathsheba? 
It, it is not a slight on Bathsheba. It is a slam of David. We could keep exploring this list of names. We know stories of others here. But we, we don't have to look hard to realize that this list has not been airbrushed. This, he, he, here is the story of the people through whom Jesus came. And in all its sordid details, those stories included messed up, broken people, incestuous relationships, uh, outsiders, foreigners, morally corrupt people. And yet here they stand in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. It is of great significance as we read on in the Jesus story that Jesus, at numerous times throughout his life and ministry, reached out and touched those whom others would not touch. Jesus reached out and touched the, the dead body of, of the, the only son of the widow of Nain. To touch a dead body was to become unclean. Jesus touched those with leprosy, this contagious disease that terrified people. No one reached out and touched lepers. Lepers had to, had to cry out. They lived outside of town. They cried out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Jesus reached out and touched those that were unclean. Jesus, Jesus' holiness, Jesus' cleanness flowed outward from him to those who were unclean. He raised the dead. He healed the lepers. See, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, in Jesus, we meet a Savior. We meet a Redeemer who has come and who will include you in his story who will make you clean and, and welcome you, and not only welcome you, but use you. In Hebrews 2, 11, we read this. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me broken men and women, brothers and sisters. See, there is only one hero in the gospel story, and it is Jesus. Jesus came and Jesus, by his grace, redeems broken, fallen, sinful people. Jesus, by his grace, uses broken, fallen, sinful people in his story. We see that so powerfully here in this genealogy. Third, God accomplishes his purposes for redemption and blessing. We've established the fact that this genealogy firmly anchors Jesus' story to history, these things really happened. And we've established the fact that, that Matthew has not glossed over the ugly bits of the story to make Jesus look better. No, he's included those ugly, those unflattering bits in the story to, to show us that, that God is not ashamed, that Jesus is not ashamed, that he's come for and through, and that he uses broken people. Third thing, I want us to notice that through Jesus' coming, God accomplishes all his purposes for blessing and redemption and blessing. I want you to note something back in verse 1. Jesus is called the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Kings were anointed. As a son of David, Jesus stands as the rightful heir to the throne. He has come to be king. Remember, in fact, that this is precisely the charge for which Jesus will be executed by Rome. Later on in Matthew's own gospel, Matthew 27, we read this. When Jesus is nailed to the cross, above his head they place the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
Jesus was put to death by Rome as one who said he was king. And Rome mockingly said, here's how we treat kings, those who pretend to be kings, those who claim to be kings. Jesus was executed as a wannabe king. Second, look with me again at the genealogy for a moment. Look at verse 17 specifically. There we read this. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now there's something interesting going on with the number 14, and we'll come back to it in, in a moment. But for a moment, I simply want to remind you of a significant marker in the history of the genealogy, and that is the exodus, sorry, the exile. Abraham to David, David to the exile, and then exile to Jesus. The experience of exile looms large in the history, in the story of God's people. Remember, God called Abraham, said, I'll make you in a great nation. That His family grew. They ended up uh, coming to the promised land under, under Moses and, and Joshua. They became this great nation. First king was Saul, then king David. But after David left the scene, things deteriorated quickly. His son Solomon was the last king over all of Israel. The king was divided after that into the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. It was this descent from what God had intended for them, for these nations. And because of their sin, sin of idolatry, the, the northern nation of Israel went into exile in 722 to the Assyrians, never to return, often referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The southern tribe of Judah, the story, the, the line through which Jesus' lineage is traced, did a little bit better. They lasted another 150 years approximately. But in 586, because of their unfaithfulness to God, because of their idolatrous worship, they went into exile to the Babylonians. In time... The exile would end. God's people would be free to return, and some did. Many stayed where they were. They'd already put down roots, but some returned to Palestine. But things were not the same. They, they continued to be a nation under foreign domination, first under Persia, then under the Greeks, then the Seleucids, finally uh, Rome. We're familiar with the story of the, the oppression under Rome from our study of the book of Revelation. But the Old Testament prophets spoke of a day when they would be free, spoke of a day when there would be a king like David who would sit upon the throne. In Jeremiah we read, In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. In Ezekiel 34, we read, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The Old Testament prophets announced that there would be a day where there would not be foreign domination, where there would be a, a new David on the throne, a new King David. Matthew's announcement of Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one, is an announcement of the fulfillment of these promises. In Jesus, God is raising up a new King David, a better David, the, the anointed one, the king who will shepherd his people. Uh, we, we've just seen in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the king, that he is the king over every other king. Here he is. This is, this is the fulfillment of all the longings of God's people. Third, Jesus, the son of Abraham, 
is the fulfillment of God's promise that through this nation, all peoples on earth would be blessed. Jesus is king, but Jesus is a, a serving king, a suffering king. He came to lay down his life in our place to redeem us from the curse of sin, to redeem us from the penalty of sin. The book of Isaiah speaks of this servant, suffering servant, this king, this one who is to come. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ came, Christ was born and, and lived and served and went to the cross because that was his goal, that he would suffer in our place. He would be crushed for our sin. He would pay the penalty for our sins so that through faith in him, we might receive blessing. Through faith in him, we might receive forgiveness. Through faith in him, we might be clothed with his perfection. Through faith in him, we, we might be adopted as daughters and sons of God Almighty. That through faith in him, we would be blessed with friendship with God, with the pr very presence of God. This is, in Christ, the blessing promised through Abraham. I noted a few moments ago that in the genealogy uh, Matthew makes it very clear that there are these three periods of 14 generations. 14 generations between Abraham and David. 14 generations between David and the exile. 14 generations between the exile and the Messiah. H having just walked through the book of Revelation, we are keenly aware of the fact that numbers sometimes play great significance theologically. And there are some scholars who conclude that Matthew is saying something very specific with this particular scheme, this particular arrangement. Especially when we realize, uh, when comparing Matthew's genealogy with Luke, that, that Matthew has, has had to tweak a few things. As one scholar puts it, Matthew does have to omit some unhelpful generations and otherwise adjust the genealogy to fit his scheme. Now, lest we get all concerned about that, we need to understand that, that these sorts of things were done in genealogies. And the word translated here as father of can also mean ancestor of. So if you dive into the details, you'll realize that Matthew has done some, some shifting of things, a, a few creative things. One scholar says this, in these genealogies, we must not expect accuracy by our modern standards. These alterations were theologically motivated. Matthew shaped his genealogy so that he would have these three periods of 14 generations. He did this very specifically. Now, the question is why? Why would Matthew have tweaked things in order to get this particular scheme, three sets of 14? Or six sets of seven? The number seven is significant in the biblical story, in the biblical narrative. Six sets of seven, that means that Jesus shows up at the seventh. Biblical account says that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. 
Old Testament legislation for God's people said that they were to work six days and on the seventh they were to rest. Not only that, but they were to uh, farm the land for six years and in the seventh year it was to be a Sabbath year. They were to let the, the, the land rest. It was to lie fallow. And, and not only that, but every seventh set of seven years, that is in the 49th year, was to be a year of jubilee, a, a year of rest, a, a year where debts were paid, where slaves were set free, where the people in the land enjoyed rest from their weariness and their burdens. Six sevens. And then the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he brings Sabbath rest. He brings an ending of debts. He brings a freeing of slaves. Here in Matthew's genealogy, he's pointing us to the, the, the final rest that we find in Christ. Hebrews 4 speaks of it. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In Jesus, in the coming of this king, this son of David, this son of Abraham, in the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, we receive God's promised blessing. We receive his rest. Burdens are lifted. Debts are paid. Slaves are set free. In Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we experience, we find rest. We taste it already, though only in part, but one day we will know it in fullness. As we move into this season, in these coming days, as we celebrate Christmas, we are not engaging in fantasy and wishful thinking. Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, Jesus came. He, he really came. He came into human history. His story is anchored in a greater story. Jesus broke into the world. He broke into human history. And he did so to fulfill all of God's promises, all of God's uh, purposes for redemption and blessing. He came to be the better David. He came to bless all the peoples of the earth. He came. And he came not just for women and men whose lives look good on Instagram. Jesus came to the broken. Jesus came through the broken. He came for the broken. He came for you. He came for me. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Through faith in Jesus, the anointed one, through faith in Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we receive rest. Through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. We are clothed with his perfection. We are, we are adopted as daughters and sons of the Father. This is the heart of Christmas, the coming of God in the flesh, God with us. If you are with us this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, I want to say to you, Christmas is not just about sentimentality. It's not about lights and, and brightly wrapped packages and trees and an overweight guy in a fluffy red suit. It's not just about fun music and peace on earth and, and celebrating the season like so many all around us do. Christmas is about Christ coming into history, breaking into our world to redeem all who will put their faith in him. Christ has come 
not for people with everything together, for people who are broken. And I urge you today to, to, to bend your knee before Christ, to repent, to turn from sin, and put your trust in this one who came to give rest, to forgive your sins, to, to take away your debts, to set you free from sin and the penalty of sin. So come to Jesus. Come to him. Open your heart to him. Receive him. And brothers and sisters, those of you who, who know Christ, who trust in Christ, as we move from this text into the more familiar nativity stories, as we think about Christ's coming, I want to remind you of the glorious good news that Jesus has come to be our king, that Jesus has come for such as you and me, that he's come for broken people, that we stand before him on the basis of his grace and we stand with freedom, with no shame. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews says. He came from such as us and he came for such as us. And he invites us into his story. He has a role for you and for me. He invites us to live as his ambassadors, to live out the message of hope the message of joy, the message of life, uh, the message of rest that is our gift from him. May he use us, may he give us great joy as we reflect on and celebrate his coming. Amen.